Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Rick Williams of Lick Run Farm, a growing urban farm in Roanoke, Virginia. Rick was my first stop once I got into Roanoke as part of my road trip in October of 2014. We sat down at his farm in one of the city neighborhoods to discuss his vision of how that space, and others like it, can act as hubs for community development and enrichment. If you have any questions after listening to this episode, get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. Now then, on to Rick Williams. Then Rick, Mr. Williams, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to start your urban farm, and we can take the conversation from there. I started to become interested in urban issues about seven years ago, I guess, and got involved in a road project here in town, trying to stop the widening of a road through the middle of another inner city neighborhood. In fact, it's the road that this farm fronts on, 10th Street. From there, I got more interested in other urban questions related to design of urban spaces and why some places work and are attractive to people and inviting and agreeable and people want to live there, whereas other places and spaces do not work. I went to take a, a position, a seat on the Roanoke City Planning Commission, and I served on that for 10 years. And as time went on, I started to become interested in the question of how to take non-functioning inner-city neighborhoods and turn those places around. That led me to the idea of using on-site agriculture and community markets as a tool for neighborhood revitalization, as a kind of way of producing neighborhood revitalization. Because the city had some real success. Roanoke's a really nice place, and it had had some success taking existing uh, neighborhoods that had certain amounts of capital in terms of uh, nice housing stock and, and financial capital in terms of people with incomes and so forth. And figuring out how to turn those places around. You know, you do some nice street renovation, you plant street trees, you get some street furniture. Businesses start to locate there, people begin to congregate, and it turns into a nice place. So the city knew very well how to do that kind of uh, neighborhood fix-up in neighborhoods that didn't really need it so much. That kind of fix-up, really, the city would call creating a village center, but it didn't know how to do that in other areas like the neighborhood I'm in. And so that was the pathway for getting me into um, an interest in taking a space like this and testing my theory, coming here, taking this land, starting to do urban farming, and set up a community market as a way of producing some kind of, or providing the opportunity for some kind of neighborhood revitalization. And that was really my path into the urban farming thing. You say that you sat on the planning board for Roanoke. Do you have a background formally in planning and project management and that kind of work? Uh, no, I don't. I am not trained as a planner. I am, my education is in uh, mathematics and mechanical engineering. Everybody who's appointed to the City Planning Commission in Roanoke has to go through a certification process, some planning commissioner's training where you are taught about the basics of planning and 
ordinances and zoning laws and, and comprehensive plans and all those things. And so I went through that, that process, that training. But no, I don't have a background in that particularly. And we're in the Lick Run community of Roanoke? Well, Lick Run is actually the stream that flows about a block from here. It's one of the tributaries to the Roanoke River. And this actual neighborhood, we sit between two neighborhoods. We're actually in Washington Park neighborhood. There's actually a physical park not too far from here, the Booker T. Washington Park in Roanoke. And that's what this neighborhood is uh, shares that name with. So this is the Booker T. Washington neighborhood. And we are right next door to the Melrose Rugby neighborhood. I took the name Lick Run because of the stream that we are very close to as the name of the farm. And then choosing this particular property was because of your interest in helping to revitalize a neighborhood? Yeah, in part. I mean, I grew up a mile from here, and I had driven past this property so many times growing up. This was a nursery, a plant nursery, up through the 90s, I guess. And it had a long history in Roanoke. It sold lots of plants to lots of people, many of them still around, trees and azaleas and other kinds of things. So I knew the property, and I really, for some, I'm not sure, unaccountable reason, I was very strongly attracted to it. I think this is a nice place. Uh, I love Lick Run, the stream itself. It's a beautiful little stream uh, when it's kept clean. For some time, it was kind of a dumping stream in the city. It wasn't so nice, but it's been substantially cleaned up recently, and it's, it's a very nice stream. And I was just attracted to the place. But yes, I did choose to do urban farming here because of the community development piece of the puzzle. If I was just going to do farming, this would probably be uh, low on the list of places that I would, would have chosen. This is not an ideal piece of property for farming. It has challenges. It's not horrible. I mean, all of the, all the challenges that it has are ameliorable. They are fixable. And uh, so it's not the worst piece of land on the planet for farming. But sure, if I had had farming as the primary focus of what I was doing, it wouldn't have been done here. It was because that urban agriculture coupled with a community gathering space, I believe, can turn a place around and lead to um, neighborhood revitalization. And I should give credit, the turn a place around phrase comes from the Project for Public Spaces, which has a long history of touting community markets as one way to start to bootstrap a place up and ultimately to turn the place around. That's their terminology, and I adopted it for what I'm trying to do here because it's very much the same kind of thing. <clears throat> There's nothing here really to support or supply a community market right now, and that's the reason, one big reason, for the on-site agriculture piece. I'd like to follow up with that some. Before we move there, I would like to talk about the overall vision that you have for the farm. But one thing about my visiting here and part of the conversation as we walked the property was that we were discussing permaculture. And I was wondering where permaculture entered into your mindset and thoughts when it comes to the farm. Well, there are two parts to that, the answer to that question. Most of the time, permaculture is applied in kind of natural or agricultural settings. I'm no expert on permaculture. I've had a permaculture design course, so I've been through all of the standard material. 
But I think of permaculture primarily in terms of system design, a system design methodology. Uh, I'm a systems engineer by profession, um, a software engineer and a systems engineer. Uh, so I think of permaculture in terms of uh, being a systems design tool in which we try to build a robust and sustainable system by minimizing the external inputs and maximizing the outputs. We think of that often in terms of agricultural or natural systems in which we build in resiliency by making connections between lots of elements in the system, things like people and animals and insects and insects, whether they're, we hope they're beneficial insects, and other animals like frogs and toads and things in wetland areas and other plant species like uh, all the plant species, but things like mushrooms and soil organisms and, you know, uh, all that. All those elements are things that are part of the overall system, uh, natural system or biological system in a sustainable, healthy farm. So, so those are the system elements when we're talking at that level. But you can also consider the system in broader terms, where the farm itself becomes one element in a system, the broader sociology of the system of a community and a neighborhood in which the farm is one element along with individuals and families and other businesses and social and civic organizations like libraries and parks and all the kinds of elements that can exist in a healthy, resilient, functioning social ecosystem. And so that's the permaculture piece. And everything that I'm doing here, I say, I, I guess I would say that Permaculture is kind of the glue that holds all of these things together because what I'm looking to do is create resilient, sustainable systems. And permaculture is a design methodology and a, a kind of systems design that is without peer when it comes to doing that. You mentioned glue for permaculture. I often refer to permaculture as a framework. And I think about all the different things that we can kind of stuff within that framework in order to make something that's functional, that one individual element may not necessarily appear to be a permaculture technique or strategy, but it's how the interaction of that piece with the rest of the system builds it into something more uh, than what it is. With that thought and what you've shared with us about permaculture and building not only an on-the-ground system with the farm, but also making the farm part of the community, what is your overall vision for the farm as a piece of this community? Well... I have to say that that changes a lot. I mean, one of the principles that I learned in my permaculture design course was uh, creatively use and adapt to change. Boy, I didn't know how much I was going to have to creatively use and adapt to change. Uh, I had no clue. And the social side of this is really evolving. I entered into this with expectations about how people, how my neighbors and other people would interact with the farm. And some of those were pretty optimistic. So the social piece of how the farm is going to fit in with the broader sociology of what's going on at lo in the community is evolving. It's not fixed. Uh, I'll give you an example about from what I hope is going to happen next year. I have a local artist who is going to be doing uh, working with us and being paid <laughs> to do uh, community outreach, the community outreach piece. So her job is going to be to go out and talk to people and figure out what they want and how we can have 
more fruitful interactions between the farm and the community. My sense is that probably what that's going to boil down to is being parties. I mean, uh, nothing revs people up like a party. And, you know, we have lots of space here. We have food that's growing here. I can bring in some more food. People can, you know, have potluck and bring things. And so, you know, my sense is probably what's going to happen is that she's going to find out that what we need is to have more social events, more parties here. But I'm sure there are other things as well. One of the big pieces will be when this house is finished, uh, the kitchen, which is going to be a big kitchen that will be tied to the indoor market space, uh, will be used to provide um, cooking classes. So what we'll do is set up a time when we'll invite 10 or 12 neighbors to come around for dinner. And dinner will be something that we will cook uh, while the people are here. So they'll come in, we'll gather some produce from the garden, we'll figure out what we're going to do with it, we'll cook it, show people how easy it is to prepare things fresh, and then we'll sit down to eat and have some time to talk and chill and hang out together and then provide people with recipe cards to take home. You know, okay, you saw how to fix beets this evening. Here's the card you can take home. It tells you how to do it. Not hard. That will be something that we'll be doing regularly here. We're also going to partner next year with a group called Project Real Talk. A couple of um, graduates of Hollins University have decided to take on the challenge of working with um, young women in inner city neighborhoods. One of them is right here uh, in this neighborhood on issues related to um, self-image and, you know, possibilities, learning not to let other people define what the possibilities are in your life, but knowing that you can achieve a lot more. They want these two uh, young women who are working on this project are interested in partnering with us. So we're going to do that next year. We're going to provide some growing space, gardening space for the Project Real Talk participants and work with them. I'll be working with them on um, not only the, the mechanics of growing, but we'll probably be putting together some projects that these young women can participate in that, for example, for maybe selling some of the stuff that they grow and so forth. And I view that as really something that has a lot of potential and possibility for helping us become more integrated uh, into the community. Because it's not only uh, working with the immediate neighbors of Likron, but students in a very nearby middle school. And getting some of those kids focused, young people focused on what's happening here and interested in it, I think is just really huge. So um, that's a long answer to your question, but I, I guess that's three things that we're, that we're focusing on for next year in terms of... Uh, have the farm be a more integrated part of neighborhood life. As you spend these first couple of years of getting the farm up and running, getting the house into shape, and now as it becomes more of a space where you can have the neighbors and the community come in to invite them in to be a part of it. Yeah, exactly. I say often to people that Lick Run is really opportunistic in terms of its development. I have a vision statement that lays out kind of, you know, looking out, looking out at the mountains, <laughs> but how to get from there to from here to there is not a straight line at all. 
And I've been, for the last two and a half, three years, been tacking back and forth. As one thing presents an opportunity, I'll sort of tack in that direction. And as, you know, that something else provides a greater opportunity for the moment, I'll sort of move in that direction. The overall line has been progress. I mean, we've advanced a lot in the direction of where I want to be or the goal, toward the goal, but it, it certainly hasn't been a straight line. In part of my visit to the Roanoke area, I stopped at Radical Root Farms on the way here. You are the second of my interviews here at Lick Run Farm, and then I'll be visiting Island Creek Farm. And part of this for me is that many of the listeners are interested in farming, but that there are so many different places to start from, well, as we were saying earlier, as we were walking your property, and as I learned from the folks at Radical Roots, you know, you have three-ish acres here, and it seemed like it wasn't enough in the beginning, but now you look at it and you realize that it isn't enough, it's too much for what you have. And that was one of the things that Lee and Dave talked at Radical Roots was that five acres was more than enough uh, for what they were doing. And sometimes I think that when we think of farming, there's still this image of I need 20, 30, 40 acres to do something with it. With that idea of having the three acres that you have and some of the possibility of picking up some more property to go with it, how much of the land that you currently have are you thinking of actually farming? Well, in terms of growing annual row crops, not much of it at all. Maybe maybe one day three quarters of an acre. That is that is huge. <laughs> three quarters of an acre properly tended and and carefully managed. And by properly tended and carefully managed, I mean as opposed to the kind of conventional farming practice of just taking as much out as you can possibly get before you dump some chemical amendments and chemical fertilizers on it to um, feed the next crop. Carefully tended and managed in terms of a biological system, taking care of the soil and through compost and compost tea and cover crops and managing soil fertility that way. Um, three quarters of an acre carefully managed can just grow an incredible amount of food. If you take care to do proper succession plantings throughout the year and you have some way of doing four-season production and growing cold-weather crops through the winter, it's just incredible. So from the standpoint of growing annual row crops, maybe three-quarters of an acre, but a big part of the permacultural thing for me is experimentation with perennial crops. Uh, food forests and edible forest gardening, as Dave Jackie has, has a, a book by that title. Because there are so many things, there is so much that will grow, uh, so many perennial things, woody perennials that are fruit-bearing, cane fruit, fruit and nut bushes. And I think of much of the land that I have here as being, will be devoted not to annual row crop production, but to edible forest garden, food forest kinds of things, or the kind of on-farm fertility that John Jevons talks about, uh, 60% that you should allocate of your land to growing, growing fertility. Because, you know, these cover crops that take carbon out of thin air and put it in the soil and take nitrogen out of thin air and put it in your soil for you. And also, in the process, produce a large amount of top growth that can be cut and composted or cut and used for mulch. So I foresee 
as I, I guess to repeat, only about three quarters of an acre in annual row crops, but then other perennial crops in a food forest setting that can be harvested and sold. And then the remainder, probably the majority of the property being in production of on-farm fertility. You mentioned your vision statement. Would you like to share some elements of that with us? Because my next question is about business planning, but let's start with something a little bit more lighthearted and visionary first. Yeah, thanks. Uh, That's good. Well, I can share some of it. I mean, I've talked about elements of it already. I mean, I talked about my planning background and my sense that, you know, village centers and streets fit for people are great elements in planning, but they get usually applied in neighborhoods that don't need them so much and don't get applied in the neighborhoods that do. So that element of taking a place, and, and this place where we're located was already identified on one of the city in one of the city's planning documents as a potential future village center. So that was another reason that I chose this particular location is that the city had already said, hmm, this looks like a good place for a village center. Uh, but the city doesn't have a lot of, as I said, experience creating those village centers where they don't exist in struggling neighborhoods that really are often very much in need of such centers. Uh, and I think part of the reason is that what the city knows how to do is come in with some money and some good design and do a top-down kind of fix-up. But neighborhoods like this do not have the capacity to respond to a top-down fix-up the way that other wealthier, more prosperous neighborhoods do. Neighborhoods like this need more of a bottom-up kind of development. And so I saw urban agriculture here as a way of, of doing that, of changing the way that we organize and inhabit a neighborhood through urban agriculture and the creation of a community market. I saw that as being a way to make these places more vibrant and vital places that would meet the needs of the people who often live here. In addition, I also saw farming and do see farming as an indispensable economic base activity. I mean, neighborhoods like this don't have a lot of capital. I mean, the banks aren't going to lend anybody in these neighborhoods money. And that actually turns out to be a good thing because the last thing people in neighborhoods like this need is debt on top of everything else. They need bottom-up economic base activity. And so my hope is that as the farm develops, the people in this neighborhood who are interested in what's going on here, and I don't think that will be everybody, but it will be some some people, uh, will start to gravitate here and be able to get at least some kind of work on the farm. I also hope that there will be people who start to get the vision and want to collaborate and participate in a way that involves more than just, you know, work on a day job. That's why I mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, that's one reason that I am so enthusiastic and excited about this project Real Talk collaboration with the coming year because it's going to bring in young people and I may start to see the vision click in some of those young people. And in fact, I've seen that already with a couple of neighborhood teenagers who do come here and do work. I pay them to do some work, and they've expressed a strong interest in not just mowing the lawn and cutting brush, but learning something about what's going on in the gardens. Uh, So we're going to start expanding in that direction. But the hope is that economic base activity, this 
indispensable kind of economic base activity where the inputs are largely free. Okay, you got to buy seeds. Okay, sometimes you got to buy something else, maybe a little compost or something. But, you know, the worms do a lot. So we have worm compost and the compost tea brewing is not free, but it's, you know, pretty inexpensive for what you get out of it. The sunlight and the air and the rainfall and the water are all generally free inputs, and you can produce a saleable output that brings money into the community. I hope that the market space here will start to attract other people. I don't see this as simply being market space for me to sell vegetables, but for other people in the neighborhood to say, oh, there's market space there. I bet I could sell such and so to the people who are coming to market. And so I hope to see this uh, money that's generated by the economic base activity of farming start to circulate in the community. Now, that's an educational component. (laughs) That's not something that my neighbors get right now. I have to talk to them about, you know, there's a big difference between the model of economic development model of corporate extraction, (laughs) kind of economic and social strip mining of a neighborhood and the model of small businesses in the neighborhood starting up and people learning to circulate money and capital within a neighborhood and build uh, economic capacity that way. So that's another piece of what I hope to see happening. And as I said earlier, you know, permaculture is the glue, or as you said, the framework, if you like, because I think of it in exactly the same way. That there are sometimes pieces where you think, hmm, I don't even know. I've never read about this in a permaculture book, but, you know, it works perfectly well as from a systems design point of view within this framework of helping to minimize external inputs and maximize outputs in the system. And so that permaculture piece is the way I see, you know, the development of all these relationships that I think can produce this outcome. I do want to say that I say this, I say that I'm not utopian. When I look back at the vision statement that I wrote three years ago, from my current vantage point, sometimes I have to say, well, maybe you were a little bit utopian. (laughs) You know, maybe you weren't as non-utopian as you thought you were. (laughs) So from this standpoint, I think maybe I did expect change to be more straight line and um, there to be... I expected there to be less education and required and less of me having to live in this neighborhood and live with people and model the behavior that I want, you know, that I would, or not the behavior, but model the lifestyle and the principles in my own life right here. But I don't really think I'm utopian because I'm intending to do that. I'm intending to live here and make my living and my home in this place with these people in my neighborhood. I don't think that, and I'm, and I'm not, in that sense, utopian, nor am I anti-technology. I am suspicious sometimes of the way that technology is used, but here I am sitting and talking into a microphone, and my voice is being recorded on a laptop, and it's going to be broadcast on a podcast, so I couldn't possibly really be anti-technology. But I am suspicious sometimes of the way technology is applied. I don't really believe that there are bad things. I just believe there are bad uses of things. And so I'm really focused here on trying to, to, for myself and to model for other people, 
modeling how to live in ways that are both grounded and progressive. I want to be attentive to the wisdom and ways of the past, but I also want to be open to the sensible and prudent use and application of technology in ways that can enhance the quality of life for everybody. So maybe that's a good place to, <laughs> to leave it alone, the vision thing that is. We can allow the vision to rest for now. But from that vision comes the practical questions that go with that. Do you have a formal business plan in place for the community farm? The answer is no right now. I went through some classes in which I developed a basic framework for a business plan, but I never, I never fleshed it out. I have a friend here locally who is really good at business planning. He's really also really good at permaculture um, and really good at a lot of things, even though he's not trained in most of them. But he started a bunch of businesses throughout his life. And I think come this spring, when the work on the house is done, he's actually helping me do some things on the house. He and I are going to sit down and talk about business plan. And I think he's going to help me put together something that's much more robust than the uh, very simple outline that I currently have. There are a lot of holes. There's the stuff that I really like to do, which is the community development and the farming and the permaculture stuff. And quite honestly, and this is nothing new, this happens to everybody. You start doing what you love and all of a sudden you start to discover that the business stuff begins to take over all your time. And before you know it, you're not doing what you love anymore. You're just managing a business. And I'm really trying for that not to happen. And if you want, I can give you my musings on how I don't want that to happen. For some of my longtime listeners, in the end of February 2014, I almost quit doing the show because that was a place that I'd found myself in, that I was doing what I loved, but I wasn't loving what I was doing anymore because trying to handle some of those business elements of it were taking up too much time and really cutting into the things that I enjoyed doing as a permaculture podcaster, as a communicator of this material and sharing it with others. I personally would be very interested in hearing the thoughts that you have on how you're going to keep your love in what you love. Yeah, well, I said musings, so don't, don't take this as... <laughs> is anything like uh, the gospel or anything. My intention is that, that I hope to see this grow, the farm and people who live around it and the interactions between the people who decide to move here or who already live in the neighborhood, is to see this unfold as kind of an intentional community. The thing that I think has caused problems for some of the intentional communities that have formed in the past is that they tend to be things that are set up out in some rural place. You'll go out and you find a piece of land and you start setting things up and hope to attract people who believe whatever it is. But that framework is difficult because you're taking people out away from cities and away from where they can actually make a living. And so it becomes very problematic many times to figure out how to do that. I mean, you may make a living, but it involves lots of travel and lots of things that maybe you didn't want to do. Anyway, my point is that something like this farm, if it begins to attract like-minded people, starts to build 
a kind of intentional community, which maybe at one point in our history we might have called a small town or a community, a place where people may want to live because they share certain values or certain interests that in this case would be, I suppose, revolving around the concept of using urban agriculture and a community market as the center and the focus of a neighborhood. I am very suspicious of drive-in community development kinds of things where people want to live in a neighborhood that is well-heeled and fashionable, but whose conscience requires them to try and come in and do some kind of noblesse oblige thing in a poor neighborhood. Uh, I don't think that works, or maybe it does work in some places, but I'm just offended by it. The idea here would be that this farm and community market would become the focus and center of a neighborhood, which would begin to attract people who might want to work on the farm or work in some capacity. I don't see the farm as being, so that's one element. I don't see the farm as being in the long term a business. I don't want it to run as a business. I would like for it to be a cooperative more than a business. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Again, let me stress, I'm musing here. (laughs) I do not have the background of some people of having a strong business background. I don't I admire people who have strong business sense and business skills and a business background, but I'm not one of them. So maybe there are people out in your audience who do have those background, that background and those skills who will say, you know, this guy's just full of it. You know, wait a couple of years when reality smacks you upside the head, buddy, and, and you'll figure all this out. And that could all be true. But in any case, the reason for the cooperative piece is that I do not believe in the current American system of the primacy the domination, the total domination of capital over labor. And by that, I mean that the interests of capital always trump the interests of labor. If I take $100,000 and put it into forming a business, that capital that I have in the business automatically grants me privileges and continuing income Even after the capital's been paid back, you know, even after I've gotten my $100,000 back plus interest, plus dividends, plus whatever. So say I get $200,000 back. That's a great return on investment. But even after that, my capital continues to call the shots. I can, at some point, if I'm interested, start to distance myself from the business and I can let other people do the work for me, but I can still draw income from that business. I understand why that's appealing, but I don't believe in it. I think that the value that a business or that an enterprise produces should primarily go to the people who work in that enterprise and the people who create the value. I mean, that may be, I may be one of those people, the guy who provided all the capital, because that's me in this case. I mean, this is run out of my back pocket. I don't have money from hardly anywhere else. But I don't think after I recover that capital investment that my position as owner because of that capital investment entitles me to a privileged position of being able to continue to extract value from this enterprise at the expense of other people who may be working here. So my intention is the intentional community thing in place. Intentional community is one part of it. The cooperative character of the enterprise is a second element. And there are people here in Roanoke who are who have a, a lot of background knowledge about how to do cooperative enterprises. I'm going to be talking to one of them tomorrow night 
Her name is Rachel Theo Morelli. And she has a lot of background in this, and that's one of the things I think we're probably going to be talking about. And the third piece is that because of being located in this kind of neighborhood where I'm doing not just farming, but farming as community community development, I set up a nonprofit corporation which has just received its 501c3 status from the Internal Revenue Service. And so that gives me the opportunity, both personally, to uh, pay for some things with, you know, pay for some developments here with tax-exempt tax dollars. But it also gives me <clears throat> the opportunity to seek grants and contributions from other people who may want to contribute to the work, but would like to do so through a tax-exempt uh, vehicle. So it's maybe not exactly true that I'm financing all of this out of my back pocket. There have We have received some contributions through the 501c3, which have helped with things like putting in the, the pump control system for the well that was done with some money that was contributed to the 501c3. Again, those are musings about how to keep this from becoming a standard business where I have to sit at a desk and figure out how to manage things for a particular profit level or, you know, whatever it is. I'm hoping that that kind of arrangement of cooperative and kind of in-place development of, let's not call it an intentional community, let's just call it a traditional neighborhood uh, where there are people who move into this neighborhood because they like what's going on here and want to participate in it at some level. You know, I hope that as a cooperative arrangement, maybe this thing will attract people with different skills. I mean, maybe not everybody who wants to be involved in this is involved in the farming part. Maybe there are people who want to be involved in the more community development parts or running the market or, you know, who knows, handling the books, doing the accounting, you know. For cooperatives, cooperative kinds of ventures, it's not necessary for everybody to want to participate at the same level. And you attract that kind of diversity of interest and diversity of talent that maybe makes it possible for me to continue to do the stuff that I really like in the venture. So that's a long answer to the question. And as I said, maybe some of your more experienced listeners will just say, well, this guy's just full of it and, you know, he'll earn. And that may be true. But for right now, that's, uh, that's the kind of vision and the hope that I have. I don't remember who said it to me. Or whether I read it somewhere, but it was the idea that you can't just dream big, you have to dream bigger. And sometimes we have to go out there and try these things, whether we succeed or fail, just to be able to show other people that there are ways forward that we might not have thought of otherwise. And that for a long time, I've learned that failure a lot of time teaches me a lot more than success, and that it's the application of that knowledge of failure that can be applied to future trials that provide new direction and new opportunity and new possibilities. So, I look forward to being able to follow up with you in the future to learn how things are going because work like this matters. If everybody was doing the same old thing and going to and going to the office day after day, we wouldn't be thinking differently. We wouldn't be seeing the world differently. We wouldn't be changing the world in a new way or being able to create the world that we want to live in. With this vision that you've shared with us today about urban agriculture as community development, as community revitalization, we're at about that time where I would ask you for your final thoughts for the listeners. Well, I don't know. I don't want to repeat too much of 
or any of what I've said. I'm sure I've repeated myself in any case. I think it's important when you talk about wanting the world to be different to put yourself on the line to do that in some way. I think it's even important maybe to phrase it in a little bit different way to say that what you need to do is to learn or to decide on some way how you're going to give yourself away. It's an opportunity for everybody to figure out what you want to do and how you can give yourself away to your fellow men, fellow human beings in doing that. If you're interested in community development, then pick a place that needs some development. Pack your bags. If it's not where you currently live, and I guess it could be, but if it's not, pack your bags, move out of your comfortable setting, and go where you're talking about providing community development and revitalization. Don't try to do it on the cheap. And I don't mean money in that. Money's the least of it. Put yourself on the line to do what you say you want to see other people do. And so that would kind of be my advice. I mean, that's what's happening here. As you said, whether it succeeds or fails, it's going to teach everybody something about how maybe to do it better the next time if it fails. And if it succeeds, maybe it'll teach, have lessons to teach people about how to improve it in going forward. But that's my advice. Um, do it. You be the champion. You know, who's your champion? The person who puts uh, himself or herself and their resources on the line to make the change that they want to see in the world. Okay, well, you do that. You be one of those champions. Well, thank you, Rick, for those final words to bring this interview to a close. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me here on your farm, inviting me in to see the operations and to sit and talk with you for a while. It's my pleasure. And that was Rick Williams of Lick Run Farm. I'd like to thank Michael Grants for helping me to organize this interview, as well as the other farm visits while I was in Virginia. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who support the podcast, allowing me to go and visit Rick and the others on this trip. Without your generous gifts, none of this would be possible. You can make a one-time or recurring monthly donation by going to www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. What I enjoyed in meeting Rick is that he is actively pursuing this work. He's in the neighborhood he wants to be in and building his farm from the ground up, even though he has questions about how things are going to operate and in turn has to create his plans as he goes. His approach might not be the one you'll hear about in a business development course, but he's embodying what he wants to see happen and learning along the way. As we said, succeed or fail, he is trying something different and exploring those possibilities. He's putting himself out there. I don't know where he'll be in a few years, but I do plan to check up on him with another trip to Lick Run in the future and find out what lessons he's partaken in while creating this dream. Another part of this was when he was talking about how there are things he doesn't want to do in order to keep doing what he's doing. I can deeply relate to that feeling, as I know what it's like to spend a lot of time focusing on what feels like the wrong things and not getting what you want done. One of the questions I often get asked is how I can produce the podcast while still having time to email and call people back, often spending hours on the phone, answering questions or just talking through a problem, while still being a present father and going back to school. I'm able to do that by focusing on the things that I like to do. As I do that, what I do doesn't feel like work. 
Yes, it can be difficult, and the hours are long. I'm always busy. I kind of joke sometimes that busy is the new normal. But it provides me the place to work from in order to do all of this. So just as Rick wants to work on building the farm as a community hub, in order to accomplish what I do, I focus on creating the podcast so that more voices get added to the discussion. And by taking the time to help you, the listener, I found my calling. I love it. I mean, I really do. Sitting behind this mic to record this or going out and taking pictures of what people are doing, having conversations, and letting us know about all these people who are doing good work, I can't imagine doing anything else. So whatever I have to do to keep on keeping on, I'm going to do it. And along the way, I am here to assist you in whatever way that I can. I'm really enjoying the results that I'm having by putting more of myself out there and embracing the idea of a gift economy. So please reach out to me if there's anything I can do for you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at permaculturepodcast.com, or write me a letter. I love receiving mail in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. The next episode, out on Wednesday, February 11th, is another live recording from the Virginia trip, a conversation with Holly Brown of Island Creek Farm, perhaps one of my most life-changing conversations of 2014. Listen in and find out why. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in, a better world for those who come after us, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.